This episode is brought to you by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds have been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. In episode 138, we heard the story of the catastrophic flood that saw Bijimaya Station engulfed by floodwaters for the first time in its history. In this episode, we are again joined by Hamish and Jody McTaggart as they share insights into the 1.4 million acre pastoral property which has been in the family for 75 years. We'll hear stories about the early days of Bijimaya and how life has changed throughout the generations of McTaggarts at the helm. Jody and Hamish also share their thoughts about the future of the station. depending on how far you go right back to the start, but um, Pidgeymire was uh, established as a station, uh, not in its own right, I don't think. It was part of a bigger station called uh, Lower Clifton Downs but uh, for a fair while, but it was it was named uh, as Pidgeymire Station in 1879 by an Englishman called uh, Robert uh, Edwin Bush, I think, or Ari Bush, he's just sort of commonly referred to. He's an English guy, uh, that came out and, uh, with a couple of, uh, offsiders, um, pegged the place out and wanted to set it up as a, as a sheep station, which he did. Um, uh, it was, it was named Bidjimaya. It's an Aboriginal word. Uh, there's a couple of interpretations of it. Once, uh, is my means home and, and Bidji is, is rest, but there's also a, a, um, a caterpillar here called a Bidji grub. So that I'm not really sure which ones, which ones it is, but there's sort of two words for the, uh, same word for two different things. So it's one or the other. And it was a sheep station. Uh, it sort of passed hands, uh, a couple of times, um, up until, um, and went through some pretty nasty droughts and, um, and you know, it, it, it was a, a stage, a sheep station that had definitely had its troubles. 
Um, and, and at one time, uh, uh, apparently, uh, uh, just before my grandfather bought, bought the place in the Second World War, apparently there was a time where there was 100,000 sheep on just the Bidjimaya lease, even without Lines River. Uh, and, and they sure, yeah, they sure 100,000 sheep in a year, which is a lot of sheep. That would have been with hand shears as well. Wouldn't yeah, it? yeah. There's a there's a there's a sixteen stand shed uh, here at Bidjimaya, which is is not a shearing shed anymore. The shed's still there, which uses storage shed now. Um, and um, and I don't really know that much of of those times, aside from just bits and pieces that you hear or read about or whatever. The Bidjimaya homestead was built uh, by R. E. Bush. Um, and only makes up just a small part of the buildings that are here now, but the original homestead is still here. Um, the, the local Aboriginal people that lived here um, just live on a, on a pool that's still here today. It was just a, just a t- tiny bit downstream from us here at the homestead. You can still see the pool. It comes and goes a bit over the decades, you know, just river pools in this river do. Um, they fill in and then they clear out after a big river for a while. But I, I think they were a semi-permanent group of Aboriginal people that used to live here. Um yeah, the water quality used to let them down and they'd come and go a bit, but I think it was, it was a reasonably stable group of Aboriginal people that used to live here once upon a time and they told the white people to build the homestead where it is here now because apparently it didn't go underwater, which they did a pretty, which was actually pretty true up until 2010. Um, it didn't, it hadn't gone underwater, so it was a, they did a pretty good job of that. They were, they were truthful about that up until, up until a point, um, 130 years later and, um, and I don't really know too much else of the time leading up until 1946 or seven. There's sort of old stories and, you know, romantic tales of different things that went on and sort of gunslingers and all sorts of weird and wonderful stories. I'm not sure how many of them are true, but sort of the McTaggart part history of Bidjimaya starts in 1947 when my grandfather, Lachlan Senior, um, with his brothers, in a company called the Nonning Pastoral Company, they uh, were my grandfather and his family uh, arrived, or his his father arrived from they arrived from Scotland and settled in the Gawler Ranges district of South Australia, and bought Bidjimaya, uh nearly destocked and in terrible drought, um, and you know really badly run down. I, I think there was it was advertised somewhere when it was advertised across Australia. It was known apparently as the most run-down and worst poorly degraded station in Australia, they were saying at that stage. That's a pretty rough title. Yeah, yeah. And um, my grandfather came from a big family. He was one of 12, I think it was 10 or 11 of them survived. A lot of boys in that family, and they, they had the Nonning Pastoral Company, which is a a, a, a sheep uh, pastoral company and so, so they had seven or eight stations between them and ended up becoming a pretty successful, you know, company in their own right. But my grandfather was the youngest of those boys. He went and fought in the Second World War and grew up in the Depression, came back from the Second World War pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, between them and the, f- and the rest of his family bought Bidjimaya, sight unseen. Was that just, if it was, if it had such a poor reputation, is that just because it was cheap then? And it oh, wasn't for sure. I mean, they would have um, probably seen the potential of it, um, you know. But it was a bit of, I'm sure. And yes, they were like, you know, the sort of Scottish sort of, um, you know, the joke about Scotsmen about you know them being pretty cheap. I think was pretty true. And um, 
Had anyone been to Western Australia before? No. And and how different is this country to the Gawler Ranges? Oh, it's pretty similar. Um, it's it's pretty marginal sort of country, low rainfall type stuff. Um, yeah, there would have been some similarities. I, I, I think without really knowing, and I, I did know my grandfather pretty well. Uh, he's, he's passed away now, but... Um, to the best of my knowledge, I think they would have probably seen a fair bit of potential, but it would have been it would have been a pretty scary proposition. They would have had to have got it at the right price, which I think they did. Um, and my grandfather um, was an amazing man in his own right, um, and not afraid of a challenge. That's for sure. He volunteered for the for the Second World War. Um, he was a touch too young to get in. Uh, to, to he and his brothers uh, signed up voluntarily and they were, I think my grandfather was just a touch too young to actually have joined, should have joined um, and they wanted to be fighter pilots um, and they, he, my grandfather did end up f- uh, being trained uh, to fly bombers in the Second World War and he went through that part. So they were pretty adventurous blokes. They grew up in the Depression they came from big, strong families and they knew they came out of very, very tough times and they wanted to do well for themselves. You know, they they have lived the life of 10 people already at a pretty young age and they just wanted to do well for themselves and that's they weren't afraid. You know, it would have been a huge, huge thing coming across here. Um, I'd have to check whether or not he actually got to lay eyes on the place first, but I'm, I'm reasonably sure that they didn't actually sight the place before they bought it. Um, and pretty quickly, um, set about living here. Um, there's talks of them walking sheep from Mullawar off the train back here to Bijimaya, you know, uh, you know, month, months long exercises without really knowing, you know, the country or where to go or what to do. They just, just did it. Um, and had the confidence and ability to pull it off and, uh, met. And married my grandmother um, on a boat on the way to England. He was going across with a very close friend of his to fly an aeroplane from England back to Australia and met my grandmother on the trip on the way over. She was a came from a pretty classy family in Melbourne, out of pubs apparently, and she's still alive to this day. Her name's Jan. We're um, about to go see her for Christmas pretty shortly. And uh, they got married and shifted to Bijimar in pretty quick time. Um, the old kitchen block or what we use now as a classroom, it's a mud brick building here at Bijimar. They would have lived in that, dirt floors, uh, hot as heat, flies, dust. A very, very strange way of living for my grandmother at the time. They had three kids, Lachlan, my father, or Lachlan Jr., um, Jane and Sarah, my aunts, and they pretty quickly bought uh, the Lines River lease. I think that was very early 50s uh, from a family called the Huttons, I'm led to believe. And they um, – so that made Bidjimai what it is today, bar a couple of other little additions that have my, my father made, um, but got it to a, a 1.38 million – Acre sheep station, I'm pretty sure it was. And through good luck and good management, the um, wool price exploded. And um, they did very well for themselves and 
threw a lot of money and, and the part, non-impartial company did really well. Um, so they became pretty wealthy pretty quickly. Um, uh, continued to buy places and work really hard and, and, uh, sort of set Bidjimire, set Bidjimire Wheat Aaron Lyons River up as a, as a, as a pretty major ca- sheep station, which in those days was just, you know, like owning a mining company was as big as you could get sort of thing. Like just to have a sheep station was just this, Incredible, you know, it was a, you know, it was, there was a fair bit of, um, power and respect and stuff went with that. It was a tough place to live, very, very tough place to live still. Um, but, uh, yeah, my, eventually my father, um, ended up buying this place off him when Nonning Pastoral Company broke up and they sold all the stations. My grandfather was, had got it, you know, was sort of of an age then to get out of stations and he had a farm in Kojanup that he went to. My father and my, my mother bought Bidjimai off him and had three children, myself, Hamish, and my two sisters, Anna and Alex. And uh, uh, they, um, in their time, added a, another block into the – that sort of made the, made the station what it is today called the Arthur River Block that was acquired in the, in the early uh, – or, sorry, uh, late 80s, early 2000s. Might have been right around the year two thousand, actually, I reckon, and uh, and uh, and converted the place into a into a cattle station. So in the meantime, the wool price, sheep price collapsed, and they weren't doing very well, and turned it into a cattle place. In nineteen ninety eight, I think they went out of sheep, and and it is a cattle place today. So Bidjimai has been in the family at least starting from the first block. For almost eighty years now, would it be forty-seven? Uh, something to, like that, yeah. So, yeah. and that's that's quite an achievement on its own. But not only has it remained within the family, it's grown. And you just mentioned the wool uh, collapse. So, can you uh, describe or explain what that is, say, for somebody who's listening for the first time or isn't familiar with what happened back in the eighties? Oh, uh, I'm forty years old, so I'm not like a hundred percent sure on it myself. You'd probably have to ask my father, but. The wool price was artificially held up by the government. Um, there was a floor price established and there was a wool stockpile established and it was sort of, it was, it, it was like any sort of market lever that was pulled to try and help the industry, which failed eventually. If that, I think that might be a bit simplistic, but eventually the stockpile got too big and they pulled the rug from underneath the, the, the the floor price and there was an oversupply and people that had borrowed money to buy these stations like my lots of people would have they were living in an artificial market that just collapsed it was just like any bubble it just collapsed um, the bubble burst and their animals and their wool that was worth such and such an amount sort of went to a quarter of that price pretty well overnight and um, like any collapse of any market, the panic and the stress and the the chaos that goes with it, I think, um, you know, uh, you know, really, it really hurt my parents, uh, my parents' business. It was, you know, I think they only just acquired it. We've only been in the first two or three years of them just acquiring it. It was a very, very difficult slog there for a fair while, I think, for them without like really knowing. I just haven't really ever spoken to Lachlan and Jane properly about it, but, um, 
Yeah, and I was only would have only been two or three or four years old when that was happening, all happening. But um, certainly can remember as a, a boy that there was some pretty pretty tough days at the office. I think as a business and living on sheep stations that weren't doing very well. And um, that's really all. My, you know, my I, don't, I think I'm sort of talking for Lockie, but I reckon he really knew sheep and didn't probably know much about the cattle game. Knew enough about it to be dangerous sort of thing, but. He was a sheep man and dangerous in a good way. Oh, like just sort of knowing enough yeah. about cattle to get into it. Yeah. And just um, checking. <laughs> yeah. And he um you know, must have been toying with the idea of shifting to a cattle place somewhere in the mid you know, mid nineties, and then eventually, just for whatever reason, just got out of sheep. I remember leaving school and coming to help Master here in the spring and the last of the sheep going off in the place in nineteen ninety eight. And then, um, and then I was sort of away from the place for, you know, from about 10 or 12 years or something after that. So I wasn't really around for a lot of that period. But, um, yeah, it became a, it became a cattle station within, like they went out of sheep and had, a, and were sort of a cattle station and sort of bought cattle from the Kimberleys and became a cattle station sort of in a 12 to 18 month period and just abandoned sheep and tried to make money in, a, in another way. Yeah. So your experience and you and you and your wife Jody's experience of running a pastoral property is while there's I'm sure there's a lot of similarities to your father or your parents and your grandparents, there's also a lot of differences. Um one being that you have a whole different species that you're running. Uh but also it's just, you know, a whole different decade and everything that comes with that. Can both of you talk to me now a little bit about Vigimaya today? Oh, well, the, the only other part of the past of that story, I suppose, and yeah, Jody will kick off here in a seat, but the only thing I'd add to that is that, yeah, Jody and I have had the, um, have had the, been lucky enough to have the opportunity to buy the station off my parents, uh, Lockie and Jane in the last sort of few years. And, um, so that's, you know, pretty recent history. So that's, um, that we've been doing, you know, having the place in our own right for the last three or four years now. And yeah, which has been, which has been great. Yeah. Uh, change, um, change kicked off pretty well immediately for me at Bijamai 10 years ago with the flood in 2010. Um, things changed rapidly in almost every aspect of life at Bijamai. Country-wise, the landscape was changed. Um, the transition had already been made from sheep to cattle. But then there was also change to, you know, management structure and having to do things a bit differently. Um, so, yeah, there is probably um, a pretty defining moment for the change um, that I've witnessed at Bidjamar in the last 10 years, and that was thanks to the flood. It's a different generation, isn't it? And we've, like, technology's changed. Just the number of people, like... How many people would have lived here? I mean, you said you used to have Indigenous people kind of that lived on the station and had their settlements and or even if they were transient, that's not really the case today. Yeah, well, the, the intensive nature of even running sheep compared to cattle, maintaining fences, um, roads, etc. like the, the amount of people that they would have had here back in the day, um, I can't even imagine. They would have had teams of, I mean, I think even in Jane and Lockie's day, they had bookkeepers living here full time, bookkeeper and a ball runners and Hamish would know better than I do, but that's certainly not the case anymore. And, um, you know, the bookkeeper is 
yours truly is me, um, but the time taken to do that job would be a fraction of what it used to be with the help of technology. So we use um, you know accounting software online. Um, and it takes me a couple of hours a day at tops to keep on top of our books, whereas once that would have been a full-time job for somebody to be here. Um, the more people there are, the more people you need to look after those people, so you would need cooks, um, you know, a couple of people in the kitchen. Uh, that's not really the case anymore. So, yeah, it's just this ever-evolving uh, thing where we definitely need a lot less people now. If this was a sheep station, we'd need a dozen people here. At Bidjimaya, even in today's like full, time. full time, pretty well. Yeah, so at the moment, full time staff here at the Bidjimaya homestead, there's four um, Hamish, myself, uh, usually a, um, someone giving Hamish a hand and a governess. Uh, and then at, you know, we obviously, Weedara and Lions River homesteads um, are part of, are part of Bidjimaya, the Bidjimaya business. Um, and there's, a couple of people, you know, couples at those properties too um, that are on the books. So, And then we have seasonal staff when we muster. Um, they're pretty clearly defined periods of time. We usually muster in um, in autumn and, um, and in spring. So it's large influx of staff during those times, um, contractors and, and seasonal staff, but generally uh, a lot less people than in the sheep days. Speaking of the sheep days, it's fairly well understood that um, not just here but everywhere that sheep generally were in the rangelands, there was a lot of uh, damage done by their them or by sheep. Um, what is the the ongoing and I suppose like the legacy of that for how you manage the property today? Yes, the big this is the big topic of conversation, isn't it? It's interesting. We went to a, a Gascoigne Catchments Group annual forum at Coral Bay couple of weeks ago and we we're having a, a conversation as we always do um, with with other pastoralists and um, and government representatives about the the historic effect of of grazing small livestock units in the Gascoigne in particular um, so what is a sorry what's a small a livestock sheep, unit sheep okay. small livestock unit is sheep large livestock unit is cattle basically um, but small livestock can encompass goats and um, dameras and bits and pieces as well in those days it was merino sheep um, in the Gascoigne for wool production not for meat production and what's the difference sorry between having a small animal like a sheep and a large animal like a cow it's the so the difference um, one of the main differences in in the way that the animals graze is that large stock units can generally not get as close down to perennial plants or any plant with their teeth. They, um, like when cows take a mouthful of food, they take it with their tongue like a giraffe would. Um, and when sheep take a mouthful of food, they bite it with their teeth, which means they can get it really low to the ground. Um, and even to the point where they're pulling up the roots. So it's kind of like when you watch somebody or two different people eat a rib bone and someone's like really just cleaned it up and you're left with a shiny bone and someone else has got kind of meat and fat kind of left all over the bone. That's right. They leave a little bit behind. Yep. yep. Oh, and, and, and they have different athletic abilities too, don't they? Whereas, you know, cattle will, 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 will walk f- further away from a water point to go and feed, you know, eat something that's a long way away yeah. and, and sort of more evenly graze a, a piece of country as opposed to something that's smaller. Um, and finds a tougher going, they tend to just sort of, you know, hammer a piece of country. 
that's pretty close to that's pretty close to the water source, so they're just a bit tougher on country is a bit of a rule there. Yeah. yeah, and behavioural differences, like one of the main ones with um between sheep and cattle is that sheep will they walk into the wind um and they they hang on fences into yeah. the wind and um like have a really strong herding behaviour. Um whereas that's not so much the case with cattle. Um they're also keen on different species of vegetation. Um cattle are prefer grass and um, sheep do really well on uh, on shrubs, which is why the Gascoigne was so ideal in those days because the Gascoigne is predominantly a kenopod scrubland, which is saltbush. I was like, what is that word? <laughs> a kenopod? Yeah. Kenopod, that- yeah. Yep, so kenopod is bluebush, saltbush, um, and it is like a, a, a low, hardy native shrub. So um, it's like the family name, like the yeah. genus name yep. maybe? Okay. Yep. So like. Yeah, so it's kind of like I guess dogs are canine, cats are feline, or, and probably tigers are feline. Yeah. So canopod is kind of like the the umbrella name that these other plants come under. Yeah, that's right. And there's all all different types of pastoral country or rangeland country in the world, um, and also in Australia. Um, you know, there's grasslands, woodlands, canopod scrublands is what we have in a lot of the areas of of the Gascoigne. Um, and it's quite similar country down in the Gawler Ranges as well where Nodding Pastoral kicked off. But um, we've actually even seen, speaking of change, there we believe there's a change in – so all of this is driven by climate. So to have a kenopod scrubland, you need a predominantly winter-focused rainfall cycle. Um, they do better to, to get that rain in in winter and then they reseed and, and um, produce again in the next winter. They're not really fussed by it. Summer rainfall gets too hot for them, um, although they're tough. I'm just talking about their rep- reproductive capabilities. Um, so we've seen over the last couple of decades, I think these things come and go, but certainly in the last couple of decades we've seen a lot more summer rainfall than winter, uh, which has had a, an effect on the canopods, on the saltbush and bluebush, um, but in, a, in their place, not that they're replacing them, but we're just seeing a greater population of, um, of grass species and perennial grass species coming through, uh, which, is, which is great for cattle production as well. Speaking of changes over the decades, uh, you mentioned something before, the Gascoigne Catchments Group. I'm guessing from my limited knowledge uh, around the traps that these kind of groups didn't exist back in your grandparents' days or weren't as prominent. Can you explain what it is and, and what it does? I would have, I would have had a different, um, response to that, Steph, if I hadn't have just recently seen something that was shared on Facebook. Really? Yeah. So Please. It, was a, it was a video that was, um, that was shared from 1973 from a program that uh, used to be on telly called This Day Tonight. And it's, um, it's, it's fantastic. If you get an opportunity, you should watch it. Um, it's, uh, it's an interview with local pastoralists from the Gascoigne area. So there's old Lockie, Hamish's grandfather, Bob Vivash, who was at Jimba at the time, and David Steadman, who was at, uh, maybe Dalgetty Downs. I think he would have been at Dalgetty Downs, yeah. Um, and they had a really well known and well respected, um, rangeland scientist, uh, with them, um, who was sharing his knowledge and opinions on the Gascoigne rangelands at the time. And his name is um, David Wilcox. Um, and it was really interesting because they were saying the same things that we're saying now, that we, you know, we're seeing an improvement. Um, 
obviously these these were the guys that were running the sheep that we're now having conversations about that have done the damage, but um, they they were of the opinion that they were witnessing a positive change in the landscape as well. So, yeah, fast forward 40, 40 or 50 years, it's – I guess you can just say it's taking a it's it's a really it's a it's the long game we're playing the long game but we are generally genuinely seeing a um, an improvement it in the rangeland condition but in different ways to that they were witnessing it in those days so like I said with the grass the um we're seeing a lot more perennial grass species coming through um and with that there would be improved uh, areas of erosion um reduced amounts of erosion because of the ground cover um but yeah, it's it was that was a insightful piece of um, of information to watch because it really is a, a really similar story to what we believe today. I suppose uh, in addition to that, the other thing that makes it a unique situation is that while parts of Western Australia or Australia have been grazed for say up to 150 years, relative to the rest of the world, that's a nanosecond and when people came and settled the rangelands and started building uh, sheep stations and, and farming the country, where they'd come from in Europe was a completely different environment, ecosystem, climate, everything. So we don't really have hundreds and hundreds or thousands of years of, I mean, obviously there's there's the knowledge of uh, Indigenous people to draw upon, but that that land then still wasn't used in the same way for farming and running livestock. So we really don't necessarily have a huge benchmark. So back then, you know, what they were learning then is compared to say what they'd learned in the early 1900s and now you've got a bit more time to add on to make comparisons and it's still a huge learning curve. Yeah, and everything is in a constant state of change. The Gascoigne River and all of its tributaries didn't arrive as a result of overgrazing from sheep. That's been a natural process that's been happening for millions of years Um, and the evidence is the depth and the length of the river and the size of the tributaries that lead into it. Um, definitely accelerated by overgrazing at times or poor management. Um, and that will happen into the future, um, by different, um, you know, by different land managers and different techniques. But what we do know and what we have learnt is that removing sheep from this country has had a positive effect on, on rangeland condition. Um, so we, we can say that confidently because we have, uh, extensive records of rangeland monitoring data on Bijimai, Lions River and Weedara, um, which is reassessed every five years, which doesn't, it sounds like a long time, but, um, you know, when you're talking about shrubs and vegetation that is several hundred years old, um, to check on it every five years to make sure it's still there. And if it's recruiting any juveniles, um, it's really quite a short, um, short time frame. So we revisit 90 sites across our properties. Um, every five years, and they're pegged out with with um, their permanent sites that we return to and take a photo of, um, and the perimeter is marked with a tape, and then we identify and count the species that are within that site. Take a photo, compare the photos to years before, um, and compare the plant counts to years before. Now, different plants mean different things. There's some plants that if they're present, it's a wonderful thing, and it's a sign that it's an indicator that the country is in a um, in a state of rangeland improvement, and then um, there's species that their presence would indicate or suggest that um, the country's in a 
state of change or in um, in a state of rangeland decline. So this is all science that we have learned from the Department of Ag over over the years, um, and certainly David Wilcox was um, that I mentioned earlier was uh, was a key driver in that and. Um, in the rangelands research department that was in the in Carnarvon in those days, so we've we've continued that. We've got records on Bijimai that you know go back forty years on these same sites. So yeah, we can say confidently that the rangeland is improving here. Um, can you explain what um, you just said something about a plant recruiting juveniles? And immediately, what popped into my mind was like gang members going around pulling kids off the street, <laughs> recruiting them into gangs. And I'm guessing that's not what, what you're looking for. It's probably not dissimilar in the um in in the in the plant world, I guess. No, but it's just basically it's just basically adult perennial um species being healthy enough to reproduce and, you know, sow their seed and the seed gets going as a juvenile plant, as a young plant. Okay. Yeah. And to see that is a really great sign. If you've got so they're called desirable species that in the past, um, well, they're always known as um, species that animals love to eat. So when we are producing livestock um, that eat the native shrubs, to be able to see those shrubs in a state of health that they're being grazed and they're still recruiting young ones to the point where, you know, they're healthy enough to be able to flower seed and grow young ones, That's means that we're not having a a terrible effect on that species of plant by grazing it. In some, you know, some cases it's a it's a wonderful thing to graze it because the animal uh, can take that seed away and deposit it with a lovely little, you know, pile of manure and fertiliser and nurture that plant and wait for a bit of rain and away it goes again. So um, raising cattle you know, on this country can be very, uh, have a very positive effect on rangeland condition and trend. So you've got 40 years of data and as you said, you just came across a video on Facebook showing that, you know, back at, in, you know, uh, the 70s at least, uh, the pastoralists were engaging with rangeland scientists to learn more about the landscape. And I suppose while perhaps the Gascoigne Catchments Group or, or little organisations like this today are different to what was in the past, even though I'm not, I'm not sure if any form of a group really existed, say, in like 1900, the idea of pastoralists still, I mean, they've, they've still been learning and sharing this whole time, but maybe it's sort of the form it takes, um, has changed. What, what does the Gascoigne Catchment Group today or what does a, a, what is it and what does it do today and how, how does it all work? So the focus of the Gascoigne Catchment Group is, is land care. Um, and we facilitate, well, the Gascoigne Catchment Group facilitates, um, any projects that are focused on Rangeland regeneration or rehydration. Um, and we're also about changing the narrative of what's happening here in the Gascoigne. Um, there's evidence that it has been degraded in the past. Um, and we have evidence and, um, we've got evidence that it's, it's in an improving state. And the Gascoigne Catchments Group is about telling that story and how we've arrived at it. And, um, there's been, a lot of things that have contributed to it. So, you know, we've, we've touched on changing from sheep to cattle, um, change of, of climate, uh, which has led to us seeing a lot more, uh, grasses in, in the landscape, which is also helpful if you're raising cattle. Um, 
The other thing probably if you're talking about changing the Gascoigne, love it or hate it, is buffle grass. So buffle grass was actually planted by the Department of Ag, I don't know when. 50s, I think. In the 50s. Um, it, came, it came over with ca- uh, camel trains as well. Apparently it was uh, used as, um, as like padding in saddles, the actual seed itself. Uh, so it's not native. It's not. It's a perennial grass, tussock grass that is not native to Australia. I think it's native to Africa or South America. There's lots of different um, variations of the species. We've got one called WA buffalo grass, um, and really that's what has held, literally held the Gascoigne together um, in the last probably 30 years. And if it hadn't have been for buffalo grass, uh, we would have seen a lot more damage to the catchment during that 2010 flood. Um, so it's got a really robust root system that goes down a long way and, um, and holds, basically just holds the soil together. The tussocks don't grow very far apart. You know, they, um, they're an individual clump, but they grow up to, you know, just a couple of centimetres apart from each other. So they all work together as a network underneath to hold soil together. Um, and it's not, um, it's a bit of a controversial topic because it is an introduced species. It's not native. Um, it has a tendency to become a monoculture, which means it takes over, takes over any native, uh, grasses that may want to grow there, that it's outcompeted by buffalo grass. So, um, now I don't, I believe that buffalo grass hasn't been in the landscape for long enough for us to know if it, if it would do that in the Gascoigne. Um, I'd like to believe that buffalo grass is, is a bit of a band-aid that's holding it together and gives the other, species that we've seen a decline in over the last 40 or 50, 60 years, an opportunity to come back and reseed and get those recruits and those juveniles. Um, and I believe that's what we're seeing now. I think that that's thanks to buffalo grass. It holds the soil together and it takes the pressure, the grazing pressure off the other species that are out there because the cattle or the livestock that are here, including kangaroos um, and other native herbivores, um, that they – you know, they, they prefer to eat that and gives everything else a rest. So um, that's one of the big changes in the catchment, I reckon. In this day and age where apps are, speaking of the changes from, you know, 1880s to today uh, and technology, apps are all the rage, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, the Gascoigne Catchments Group has come up with their own app or developed an app, which is very cool, but not quite a TikTok um, what is the app and how does that work? Yeah, so the Gascoigne Catchments Group is um, still in the process of developing the app. Um, it's called the Rangeland Monitoring Tool. Um, it's available on on um, the App Store now. It's, um, it's free of charge. Uh, but basically it's built around these pasture monitoring sites that I mentioned earlier that Bidjimai have 40 years' worth of data. Um, so the pasture monitoring sites is a system that was um, designed by rangeland scientists like David Wilcox, you know, back in the day. Um, we haven't changed any of that science. Um, those sites were abandoned by the Department of Ag in the 80s, I think, or early 90s. Um, as, you know, uh, their resources became thinner on the ground and personnel and, and skilled personnel. Um, it's really time-consuming to, you know, for, for one person to be based out of Carnarvon to come around. We've got 90 at Bijimar, 90 sites. Uh, so you can imagine how time-consuming um, it would be for the department to have those people out on the ground assessing these sites. Um, so they were they became the property of the landholder to do what they wanted with the sites, continue them, um, all of their um, files were handed over to them. 
Uh, so landholders were able to continue to use their sites or not. It was no longer part of the regulation of, of our pastoral leases to monitor them. Uh, there were a lot of pastoralists that decided to continue doing them, like, um, you know, Lockie Hamish's dad kept going with them and we've certainly um, kept going after him over the last decade. But it's the Gascoigne Catchments Group monitoring tool is built on those pastoral uh, monitoring sites or PMS um, and where you basically traditionally used to just go take the photo and then record your species on a piece of paper. Um, now it's just all built into an app. So you take your iPad out or your phone, take a photo of the site. Um, it will log your uh, location. Um, and then there's just a drop down menu of alphabetically ordered plant names. Um, they're, uh, their Latin name and their common name. Um, and then you can enter the individual count for each species. Um, which is great. So that's the first part of it. And then behind the scenes in the app, we worked with, um, with some ruminant, uh, a ruminant nutritionist, uh, a rangeland scientist and a botanist to come up with, um, awarding each of these perennial species, um, a value between zero and 10. So this go, this links back to what I was saying earlier about an indicator species. Some species, their presence in the landscape will mean a positive thing and others, their presence will mean that there's a change occurring. Um, or that, you know, if you're seeing a lot of one species replacing another, it means that there's a, it can suggest that there's a um, downward trend in rangeland condition. So, um, if you have a plant that scores one, it's probably not a very good plant to have in your in your site, but if you have a plant that scores a 10, that's a really, um, it's a really great indicator species and it means lots of great things, not only for the landscape, but you know, the cattle can graze it and stuff as well. So that's built into the background. So when we enter, we arrive at a site and if you've got, you can identify three different species in your site, you take your photo, you identify them, you count them into your counts. And then behind the scenes, it calculates the value of those plants and spits out at the end a score, a score for your site. What do you think we have to do to be able to get this? I suppose maybe obviously there's regional uh, differences, but the idea is, I suppose, the bones of it now that once this is up and running, getting this made for other regions around Australia. It yeah, sounds, it's a it's a it's a really cool initiative. Yeah, so they've um, the Gascoigne Catchments Group has worked with other um, with the KPCA and um, some other groups, and they have uh, brought in some more species. So the monitoring tool as it stands at the moment is very Gascoin orientated. So it um, it lists a lot of the species that we find commonly in the Gascoin. If you were to take it and use it over east, there might be a couple of species there, but it generally wouldn't list everything that you would find on the other side of the country. So we have engaged with other groups and um, and gone through a similar process of awarding values to different species and they've been bolted on. Um, and that's really not a difficult thing to do. That's I think that's more or less been a desktop assessment using um, the right experienced people and professionals to come up with the correct values. Um, but with the topic of change... It's, so we've been building this app for 10 years, nearly 12 years, and every time we think that we've got it nailed, the technology changes, you know, the World Wide Web changes and apps change and, um, and we're always just um, a step behind with, uh, with keeping up 
uh, with with the development, basically, getting this thing polished and, and finished. It'll be great to see if it does um, c- can grow and be used across the country. Is it possible that you say the the, the species have their assigned values? Is, is there, like, say, could it be possible that something that you could find the gas coin is like a you give it a 10, you say it's really good that it's here, but say in the Territory, you see it and go, well, maybe it's only like worth a four in the Territory? Yeah, absolutely, yep. Yep, those, um, and that's, it's probably the most important process of the development of the app is to make sure that those values are relevant to the area that the monitoring will be done in. Because like you say, buffalo grass could be wonderful for us here and it could be terrible for the people at Alice Springs. Which is, which is the, which is the reality. And, but the thing would be is that you're not really comparing our Bijimai's um, you know, uh, uh, Bigi, this is Bijimai's score and, um, Brunette, and this is Brunette Downs' score. We're not, that's, the, the idea is, is that, that, that the app spits out a score, um, that is, is just Bijimai's score and you compare it year on year and year and year on, mm-hmm. on Bijimai. So it's, it's an objective score where, where, where we've had the issue that we've had with, Rangeland monitoring and Bijimai's assessment and its and its health is that there is no objective score or it's just it's a subjective um, assessment made by somebody that you're not really agreeing with a lot of the time and fundamentally opposed to uh, you know the, of how of how these things all work. You were being told that your your station rightly or wrongly was in a good or bad was in good or bad health, but this actually generates a number. And in ten years' time, if that number does is better or worse than what it is now, then it's there's just some. It just it it's saying to you, it's saying to the people that um uh, that 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 aren't think you're doing a good job, the people that think you are doing a good job of looking after the range, and there's a there's an objective number there that you can work off, and that's the important thing. And and the only other thing that Jody hasn't hasn't said, which is worth noting, is just how educational. That, that tool is. So Jody, you know, knows her plants on Vegemite inside and out. She's got a better knowledge of it than what I do. But if you're a person that has not long bought a cattle station or you've shifted in from somewhere else or you've, you really, you just know the common name of a few plants and that's about it. This tool has got all the pictures as you can actually go to the, you know, if you're a guy that comes from Bunbury and you own a station up here, you walk onto some of these. Sites and you've got no idea what those plants are or what their function is or how handy they are for f- productivity or um, preservation or method. You know, you, you you don't know anything about that plant really. Whereas this tool teaches you that. And how important is that? Is that you're being educated about the plants that are on your station? So that's probably one of the most important things I reckon about the tool. It does a great job of that. Yeah. Has this app been funded by the? Community or is uh, have you received government funding? Can I no, ask? it's fully funded by the government. Um, yet, so it's um, Rangelands NRM is the main driver behind the um, the monitoring tool. Okay, without getting too political, I just wanted to check because um, 
while these, these are leases that you guys obviously you hold the lease for and it's your business and you have a responsibility as a leaseholder to maintain and improve the landscape, it's also an asset of the Crown. You know, there's, the government has a vested interest as well. So I'm just, just wanted to make sure they're kicking it and doing their part. Um, wow, can't crack a smile on Hamish's face. I was like, making a joke, Hamish, not really. So there's been a huge, Huge changes in Vigimaya's lifetime and in the region's lifetime from the species, you know, the people in the area, um, just so many things that we've covered already. We've kind of gone past and present day, but I'd like to ask you about the future and what you think the future, the future of Vigimaya is. Well, I think if, when you think, when you listen to Hamish's stories of the generations that came, of McTaggart's that came before him, Lockie Senior, then Lockie Junior, and the highs and the lows that came with each of those generations. I think there's a lot that you can't, obviously you can't plan for. Um, we've seen a couple of highs and lows already in our short 10 years of, um, of being here. Don't know. It's just so hard to, I mean, we always say it to each other. Imagine, Go back 10 years, we would have never thought we would be where we are now. And you could not, there's not a person in the world would have predicted that the Australian cattle industry where it is where it is now. It's just so hard. We live in a very variable climate. Um, the cattle industry is notoriously has its ups and downs, like most industries, I suppose, but probably even more so. I'd, I'd say the only thing um, that I look forward to is um is watching this station get healthier and healthier and healthier from a rangeland health point of view. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, I reckon I'm really um, keen to um, you know sort of demonstrate to the world and and mostly Australians that that you can but by farming cattle in these rangelands, it's it's actually a really sustainable. Exercise, but we're also, um, we're going to move into, you know, a carbon future. And we, I think, I reckon we'll, we're going to find out in the next five or 10 years that, that, um, managing fires on these stations while use of cattle and promoting grasses and trees and growing carbon on these places that cattle is actually very good for the environment. Growing cattle on, in the range zone is really good for the environment, which, you know, has been counter to what We've been told for a very long time that cattle are actually bad for the environment. So I'm looking forward to that. And, um, and if possible, just looking forward to just feeding the world like we currently do. The world still needs protein to be a healthy person. You need plenty of protein. The world, a lot of kids and people in the world struggle for protein. And, um, to be part of an industry that, that, that helps that helps, helps people be healthy and happy. Is um, pretty exciting, I reckon, and should be we should be proud of it, and um, and uh, and and you know it's it's just such a great place to live. I just look forward to living here and farming, hopefully, growing and watching these kids get a bit older. Speaking of the future of Vigimaya and I suppose just the the industry in general, what does the word sustainability mean to you? What does it mean to be sustainable? I'd like to sustainable is 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 standing still. I mean, I'd I'd like to think 
it, I want to, I want it to, I want this station, I want the cattle to thrive and I want the people here to thrive. I want the whole shire to thrive. I want the whole community to thrive, not just survive. Um, you know, I, I, you know, just sort of going back to another bit of the conversation we had about, you know, the history of Bidjimire and the people that lived here once that just didn't know any better or didn't know they were making those mistakes as they were making them. And, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's a journey that we all go through and we, you, you have to learn from those mistakes. You're an idiot if you don't. But I mean, people like my grandfather and my grandmother, who I'm sure there are some people out there that would say that they, you know, nearly tortured this station to death. They are fine people that it is arguable that they made mistakes or not, but they, A, didn't know any better and B, were trying to kick goals because they'd all lived these a lot harder lives than what we do now. Um, and they were having a red-hot cracker. They were brave people that were having a red-hot cracker. And if there was mistakes made, we, we, we've made, we've learnt from those mistakes. We've turned the mic through my, you know, the generations after that. And there's a, there's a, there's a path forward now that, um, we, we, we think is really healthy and strong. And, um, and that's, that's as, as, as exciting as it gets, you know, and, um, I said, yeah. I suppose it's all relative. For all we know, in 150 years' time, someone might look back and go, well, Jody and Hamish were just doing the best they knew how at that time and with the best they had. Like, when you don't know what you don't know and, and um, you know, they were doing a ripper job back there. I mean, the fact that the station has, you know, uh, survived so many, you know, depressions, droughts, the wool market crash, so many things. Like people have done a ripper job and you just, you don't know what you don't know. And, and that's the, I'm sure the same. You guys are doing an excellent job right now. And it's, as it's been demonstrated in this episode, you're incredibly proactive as people back then were, but they didn't know what you know now. And you, you probably don't know now what we're going to look back in 200 years time and, and say the same thing. I mean. Yeah, it's it doesn't. A, yeah, it doesn't make you guys any. It doesn't make anybody less of a. It's um, a very, very evolving story, you know. Like, what in twenty years' time have we, will we have abandoned the cattle industry and we're running alpacas or something? I mean, you you cannot. It sounds like a joke, but you honestly just do not know where you're going to be in twenty years' well, time. They probably in this didn't. Game. They probably <laughs> didn't think it would be cattle country when they were in the heyday. It was a gold mine with all the wool and. You know, like you said, the the status of being a, of having a sheep station, they probably never thought, oh, this would be a cattle place one day. Let alone with Brahmin cattle that weren't even like in Australia back then. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm not going to argue if we, you want to run alpacas though, because they're pretty cute. Yeah, the unpredictability of this country is is very hard to. You know, I think we drive people mad with our lack of planning at times, but it's very very difficult to look much further than about. You know, twelve months out, if that you so you you really dependent on on what seasons in front of you. You never really know that until it's kind of happening. Um, and oh, I I reckon we've got a a really a really strong future. But um, it's what shape and size and and the ups and downs of it really. It's 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 anybody's guess. Yeah, it's anybody's guess. This place has been on the market in the last five or six years. We didn't know that we were going to be here five years ago. There's a very realistic chance that we weren't um so you 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 do never know and um and a lot of people are in the same boat farm you know in the farming game and even if you own a 
you know, a news agency in Perth, you'd, you know, it's, it's hard to know where you're going to be in 10 years' time, but it's even harder if you live on the banks of the Gascoigne River. It's a it's a special place, Bidjimaya, and there's been so many people that have contributed to the story of this place and um, and of the Gascoigne River and the catchment as a whole um, and things that we do today and tomorrow and have done in the last five or six years, they're all going to be parts of, of, you know, what our kids are talking about when they're 40. We don't realise it now, but we're probably making mistakes that they're learning from. Um, and I guess it's just important to know those stories, um, you know, to going back to that dis- this day tonight uh, story that was on Facebook the other day. It's just so insightful um, and important to keep sharing your stories, I think, um, because there's always something to learn from them and that's we never know what's coming. Um, but to be able to reflect on what has been done um, and use that to be part of this evolving story of this ancient landscape um, and this industry that no one knows which way is going, um, but we're all just enjoying ourselves so much and, and are so privileged to be a part of it all is um, just keep sharing our yarns, I think. Oh, and that's one of the – yeah, so the, the only other thing we missed from before is what is the – is just share like-minded people – Sitting down in a in a room and sharing ideas and just attitudes, you know, and learning things from people that you respect about how you should be running your place. And you know, all all, all we've ever really done is, or Jody and I have done is 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 look at people around us that look to be doing it, making money by running cattle in a in a really looking really looking after their cattle and really looking after their station and making money that way. And really all you're ever doing is copying them. And um, and that's what a, a good land care group probably does above anything else. And it's just, I think, probably much as anything, just having the right attitude, you'll make mistakes. For, or, you know, we're undoubtedly making mistakes now that we're, not un- that we're unaware of. But if, you, if your attitude's right, well, you're halfway there, aren't you? I reckon is the, is the, is the main thing that's, that's, that, um, that we try and... Lies on with, to the best of our ability.